Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. We're blessed to live in a time when medicine has evolved considerably, when we have all sorts of new treatments. But do our doctors know about these treatments? Doctors may have finished medical school years ago. How do they possibly keep up? To learn about this today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Michael Lischke. Michael is Executive Director of the Office of Continuing Medical Education at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Michael, welcome to the show today. I wanted to start off just with some basic understanding of doctor's education. You know, doctors go to medical school, they finish their residency, they're extremely well-trained, but then it's over and they practice for a lifetime. How do we know that they're keeping up to date on what's going on in medicine? Right. That, that's, a, that's a big challenge in all of healthcare uh, professionals uh, and doctors included in that, uh, you know, if you, put, if you put the number of years that physicians spend in their formal training and put that out on a timeline, you could pretty, pretty easily uh, conclude that a physician has to be, all healthcare professionals have to be lifelong learners and they spend 80% of their professional pro- professional lives outside of their formal education training, their diploma earnings or their residency programs. So that's where continuing medical education, and that's the term that is used for physicians, um, the Let's- broader term for healthcare um, and pretty much any other professional profession out there is a broader term of continuing education. Continuing education. So is, is CE the current term? And I'm so used to CME, but right. do you call it CE in your office? Well, we, we call it CME if we're specifically only talking about physician and mid-level practitioners like physician assistants and nurse practitioners. They all um, are can can claim and use CME accredited activities to, in essence, show some evidence that they are keeping current with the latest uh, treatment and, and information. So, so what is um, CME or CE? It's it's really it's it's it, the definition. It used to be in the good old days. It was an activity where physicians showed up to a lecture hall. They sat and listened to the lecture, and they earned hours for doing so. Yeah, that sounds useful. Yeah. That's not what it is anymore, though, huh? That's not necessarily what it is. You can still use some of that, but really it's the just like the curriculums and, and medical education in the broader context of 
the current students uh, in medical school right now, there's always and will always be the didactic lecture. You've got to have the information download, period. You've got you to have it. So there will always be a place for the didactic lecture stuff, but what's really happening more and more is around performance. It's around practicing. It's around simulations. Um, it's around communication skills. It's around working with other healthcare professionals who are not necessarily physicians. So it takes lots of forms um, in, in activities and whatnot. That sounds very cool. Simulations, is that something that you're involved with? Oh, we are. We are. Uh, Wake Forest and, and a lot of medical schools um, are very active in simulation um, you know, these high-fidelity computer uh, mannequins and womankins, I guess you could say, uh, hooked to computers where uh, the, the trainees or the folks who are participating in the activity really get hands-on on practice as if that was a real person experiencing these really uh, live activities on, on, on a simulator that somebody behind a screen is controlling. So I take it that in addition to medical schools spoon-feeding knowledge on this massive basis into the brains of medical students that they're also involved in, in, in cutting-edge development of simulations for medical school, and now those simulations are extending into the continuing medical education of physicians? Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's not even – it's even back getting into – even the more basic, you know, the, the cadaver lab, for example, there's, that was always thought to be your first-year medical students spent time in a group around a live... Um, formerly live. Yeah, formerly live <laughs> um, uh, individual who has deceased, who's donated their body to medical science. And what we're finding, and we, Wake Forest has a, uh, an anatomical uh, laboratory where people who are current practicing healthcare providers, pr practitioners, actually come back into that same laboratory to learn the latest, greatest, you know, ligament surgery on the knee, or I mean, you can anything you could think of, um, just to to again give that hands-on experience. So, the kinds of educational activities physicians do basically. Continuing medical education is any educational activity physicians may choose to engage in to keep their skills up to speed. Is that right? That's correct. And then get credit for that. They do. They get they get credit. It's it's still awarded as hours. So they in North Carolina they're required to have fifty hours um, per year, and. What there there is a, the the complexities of how you claim that and how you what counts and what doesn't. Um, so many of those, and I think it's thirty hours of that fifty every year, have to be from an accredited provider. Twenty hours can be you know, that you uh, taught a medical student. A medical student was shadowing you for a day. That can count towards some of the non-accredited hours. Uh, claiming uh, two hours that you read um, the latest journal in your field, you can claim those as cat that's called category two credits. But the category one credits are what 
require a whole lot of time and energy and must be provided by an accredited provider. I want to talk to you about that in more detail. So some of these requirements, of course, are going to vary um, from state to state, but I imagine there's going to be some some considerable similarity. So let's assume that the physicians are required to spend roughly 50 hours a year getting continuing medical education, an hour a week keeping up with their craft. Uh, I imagine many physicians probably do a lot more than that. Right, right. Um, But you were specifically talking about accredited um, CME. Now, now that sounds kind of bureaucratic to me. What what are are you talking about accredited CME? Right. Every every – every uh, stop on the continuum of medical education. So, for example, the undergraduate, the current medical schools, the 128 medical schools in our country right now, they're accredited for the, to award the MD degree. Um, they have a commission, a national commission that accredits them. That's the LCME, the Liaison Committee for Medical Education. And when medical students graduate from medical schools and go into residency programs, those residency programs have to be accredited by the um, Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. And then the continuing medical education world, it's called the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, which is a fairly large organization made up of seven different medical-focused uh, or physician-focused organizations, and those are the American Board of Medical Specialties, the American Hospital Association, the American Medical Association, the Association for Hospital Medical Education, the Association of American Medical Colleges, the Council of Medical Specialty Societies, and the Federation of State Medical Boards for the United States. That Those seven high-level national groups create this Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education. All right. Well, let's say I were an expert in psoriasis, Mm -hmm. and um, there's some new treatments out for it, and I think, you know, it's time that physicians get up to date on this. I mean, there's been so many changes. Um, I'm going to put together a course, and I'm going to teach physicians um, how to better manage patients with psoriasis or or pick whatever condition you want. I throw together this course, and um, I want doctors to be able to get CME credit for it. Um, right. Is that a simple thing for me to arrange? Uh, it, it it all depends on your definition of simple. Yeah. Um, well, take us through it. <laughs> take us through it. What, what's right. involved? Right. Well, first of all, it's it, it's far more than identifying kind of the latest, greatest treatment, in this case, psoriasis. Um, you really need to... Um, for lack of a better word, prove that the need is out there. So identify the, the big question and the big million-dollar question these days is what specifically is the practice gap that you see that needs to get corrected? So in, in your psoriasis case, is there, is there data that you have? And, and all of this data exists. It's where we as medical professionals have never had to document it like this before. Is, is really what it's boiling down to. So we're we're having to show not that there's that patients need a treatment, but the gap we're talking about is we have to show I have to I have to show that there's an audience of doctors out there who need to know this material. Right. 
so and how do you do that is the is the big question and there's lots of different ways and there's no magic way to do it um, for example you can show it that there is a um, a uh, some data on state level the national level the regional level however you have it um, that there are x hundreds of patients who have been misdiagnosed underdiagnosed mistreated undertreated for this specific issue and you can you can gather that data from various health report cards um, you know we all we all get graded um, with these in, in our healthcare world anymore um, and and specifically identify what is it and how do you how do you know that that in fact is not how do you know people docs out there don't understand the the latest greatest treatment of psoriasis okay so I've put together my needs assessment. I've, I've, mm-hmm. I, I went and actually surveyed a, a group of doctors, for example, and found that they didn't know about a lot of these new treatment options uh, right. or perhaps maybe some old uh, treatment option that uh, one of my favorite treatments for psoriasis is having patients get a light box that they can use at home. And very few patients are prescribed this. Very few doctors prescribe the units, and I can document that, and I can show they don't know they're not well-trained, that the doctors aren't well-trained in prescribing these devices. So right. I've put together a compelling needs assessment. Right. Uh, that's it? Am I done? Well, that's the starting point. All right. And then the, the next thing is you need to identify who is an accredited CME provider. And there are, in, in the United States, uh, last report that I saw based in uh, some the year-end data of 2008, there are 725 accredited providers, and anybody who would like to be an accredited provider can go through the very um, stringent process of becoming. So in our worlds where, where we spend most of our time, of course, in schools of medicine, you know, almost, almost every or every medical school out there is an accredited provider. So there's 125 of the 725 total. The rest of them are coming from medical education communication companies, um, physician membership organizations like your dermatology groups that you might belong to, various nonprofits. Some of the insurance companies go through it and see value in having accreditation status, hospitals, and of course, um, government and military healthcare providers, the VA system and, and whatnot. They, they account for a small number. You know, so there's a there, so in your case, there are 725 people out in the United States who um, you would want to pick one from. Yeah, so these these providers are not people like me who have an education. I mean, some of them might be, but ha- have a have a goal in some specific area they want to educate doctors about. These are sort of umbrella organizations that provide the accreditation for an hour of CME credit or some CME program. Right. Now, 725 sounds like a lot, but, you know, if you figure there's 700,000 doctors in the United States. Right. And they each need 50 hours a year. Right. That's 35 million hours of CME credit yep. that somebody's got to provide. Yep, this is true. Yeah. And at, at some, I don't know, $20, $30 a CME credit hour, that's probably a lot of money. Right. It's, uh, it's an expensive... Um, to do it properly, it's, 
it takes an incredible amount of effort and energy and people power to really appropriately document the whole thing. All right. So I've got a, a needs assessment. I've, I've identified an accredited provider that I'm going to work with. Right. And um, they're going to assure that that uh, all the T's get crossed, the I's get dotted. What, what What's involved? What do they need? What do they need to do? Do they just stamp their blessing of approval on me, or do I need to show them something? No, you, there's a there's a very in-depth process of the the what you're calling a needs assessment. What I would call a profession identifying the professional practice gap. That's really step one, and step two, and and everybody does it a little differently, as you can imagine. Um, at Wake Forest, the CME office, what we then do is somebody who's on the staff will actually come and sit down with you. And, and really go through it as if um, you were planning a brand new, um, whether it be a one-hour or three hours every week for the entire semester, course for the undergraduate medical students. Okay. So it's, it's somebody who will come and sit down and, and go over with you um, the entire process. There's a very in-depth um, application form. It used to be a fairly simple, uh, straightforward kind of a process, and I think what's what really kind of transpired over the years is it, the, the process. There were there became some perceptions that it wasn't being um, appropriately planned and implemented. So the accreditation body, um, through lots for with lots of different influences really had to pick up what it means to have a CME activity, whether that be a one-hour or whether that be a week-long course, um, you know, here at the medical school. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. We're speaking today with Dr. Michael Lischke. He's executive director of the Office of Continuing Medical Education at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. So, in the application to pro- to produce a CME program, uh, Michael, what kinds of things would I have to let the accredited provider know? Right. Yeah, pretty much your entire plan from we, – we've talked a little bit about identifying the practice gap and what does that mean and how do you document that to what are your methods of teaching? Is this all didactic? Is this a hands-on? Is this case study? What are your objectives? Around what at the end of the activity, what do you, what are you, what are you really trying to get at? Uh, to how you are going, how are you going to evaluate the uh, activity when it's over? Uh, so it's a it, the the application. Are in most we're like most other um, accredited CME providers is that we have an application that is very in depth, requires um, a substantial amount of energy and effort. And to really ensure that this activity that's being proposed meets the minimum standards. This sounds like modern America. <laughs> I have the sense that ten years ago, they would have said, uh, "Oh, you want an hour CME credit? You know, um, you know, have a have a conference, cover something for an hour, you get your hour of CME." But now it's it sounds like what you're describing is what we see. The schools going through wanting documentation of of objectives and and, and ideally of outcomes. Right.
That's very, very accurate. So outcome assessment, what kinds of things are being done at this point? Yeah, that that's the we as a you're as struggling a, with it, aren't we're you? Struggling with it, yeah. yes. And and the challenge is, you know, what we used to call an, an evaluation form, and this goes back probably I don't know ten years ago is when I started in this world. Um, when you talked about an evaluation act of an act, CME accredited activity. We now, I now refer to that as kind of the smile sheet evaluation. You know, oh yeah, the, was the speaker engaging? Uh, did did the speaker meet the objectives? Was the room temperature good? Was the food good? That that was the ten year ago deal. Mm-hmm. Now, um, for some of those basic, you know, if you want to be really crass about it, client meaning the participant in the activity, view them as a client. Their immediate satisfaction is very important for obvious reasons. But what, what's gone beyond that now is um, efforts are underway to get back in touch with people who attended an activity. For example, if you had your cirrhosis activity today, three months from now as a participant, I might expect to get an email, a phone call, a letter, some form of communication asking me, the participant, okay, since you attended Dr. Feldman's psoriasis treatment presentation three months ago, what have you done differently in your practice? What What are you struggling with? What are the barriers to why you couldn't implement what was declared as the latest, greatest treatment options for your patients with psoriasis? And that all of a sudden becomes a very staff-intensive um, uh, You can just imagine if we're doing, last year we did, just at Wake Forest alone, we did over 1,500 accredited activities with, 37,000 people participating. Wow. So you can imagine what kind of, of um, challenge that really putting outcomes out there uh, as a result of these activities, what that really will translate into. The bottom line is the whole goal of CME is, is to promote and ideally assure the quality of medical care doctors are providing. So I, I imagine... Well, I don't know if anybody's ever come to you with a, you know, a how to evaluate at the end like this, but let's say their their needs assessment at the beginning was, you know, we have data that says that at half of the office visits, doctors aren't checking blood pressures, and, and they should be right. checking blood pressures at every visit, and here's documentation why. And we're going to put together this program, and we're going to educate the doctors, and we've got some novel ways of, that we think are going to make doctors do this. And at the end... Um, we have access to electronic medical records that show whether the patient's received a blood pressure check or not, and we're going to come to you with a um, with with data, you know, one month, one year out from the program, right. looking at what percentage of patients are getting their blood pressure check. That's how we're going to evaluate this. Right. You look at that highly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's where we are headed, uh, without a doubt. That's where we're headed, and and not only from a CME accreditation standpoint, but which is probably a whole different conversation, that's where physician payment is headed. Um, and the whole perform- pay for performance as opposed to you got payment because you ran this test and you treated this person for a half hour in your office. But physician payment, once all these electronic health records get implemented in, in talking to each other and data is able to be tracked, 
that's where I think the whole industry is really headed. Yeah, I guess if you really want to be strict about this forward thinking, you'd say, well, you know, Steve, that that assessment you have of whether they're getting their blood pressure checked may cut it in the near future. But in the long-term future, what we really want to know is whether the patients end up having a better outcome. And, and having a blood pressure check is an important part of the process of care. Right. But we'd actually like to show down the road that the that more patients have their blood pressure under control. And we'll even right. be able to do that in theory with um, the appropriate electronic medical record tools. Right. I think we will. We're doing some of that right now with the CME office here and the Northwest AHEC. Tell me, what um, what is the Northwest AHEC? The Northwest Area Health Education Center. It's one of nine regional AHECs or area health education centers across the state of North Carolina. Um, I have the privilege of overseeing both of those distinct groups here at Wake Forest, but they're very related in what they do. Mm-hmm. And we currently have a project that the statewide AHEC system is participating in that is looking at diabetes and asthma care. You know, and, and the bottom line is exactly what you described with instead of uh, checking blood pressure, it's, it's not a secret how we can keep little Johnny and little Susie out of the emergency room when they're having an asthma attack. We, there's, a, there's been enough research to show that, you know, little Johnny and little Susie need, need an annual checkup. They need an albuterol inhaler for uh, fast acting when they're having trouble. And we have systems in place um, that we, we know if little Johnny or little Susie hasn't filled that albuterol inhaler prescription. And so it's tying all of that into kind of almost in a case management kind of a system um, that we're working with a bunch of really good people across the region right now. And it's proving to be very successful. It's a very staff-intensive, very expensive thing to do because you're talking about preventing the, the, the emergency room visit rather than paying for the emergency room visit. Um, but, it's, but it's showing that it's, it's working very well and some of the big uh, health uh, payers, Medicare, Medicaid, Blue Cross Blue Shield in North Carolina, are all very, very active in that project with us. Well, I don't want to digress us too far, but what you're sounding sounds like it has tremendous potential benefits for health, and yet at the same time it sounds like, boy, we're going to know a lot about people. I mean, if, if I mean, it's great for their health to make sure they're getting their albuterol, but if we have an electronic medical system that's recording whether they're filling their medicines or not and right. and and – and, and what's happening to their health on a regular basis. That's a lot of information for this electronic system. We'll call, we'll, we'll name it big brother to, um, to, uh, have control over. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a very, um, a potentially controversial topic, uh, as we all know, um, and have already heard some of it, but at the end of the day, what, what, what I can tell you is that, um, what I know for fact is that it does in fact, improve the health of the public, and it, and it impl- implements what we know on how to prevent things like uh, asthma attack uh, visits to the ER. Well, let's talk about one other controversial issue, and that is the influence of drug companies on physician education. So and we have the, this continuing medical education going on. 
how do we know that 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 some drug company um, isn't util- utilizing that system to somehow oh pervert the knowledge of physicians um, as opposed to simply getting out um, valuable information that will really help patients right that that is a, that is a hot topic right now and there are lots of people uh, in our country and in our Congress who are really focused on that and so I mean you, you ask you ask one CME kind of person their opinion and you're going to get that one person's opinion what what I can tell you is that the physicians that I use and the physicians that my family uses um, I trust them or I wouldn't go to them and I think unfortunately the the assumption um, is that there's an ethical it boils down to an ethical uh, judgment call on on our physicians is really the way I see it in our healthcare professionals. Um, you know, the the main drug manufacturers and medical device companies um, they have uh, we, we have a we have a lot of really incredible treatment tools in our tool bag as as healthcare professionals because. They developed it, they researched them, and now they are providing them. And, of course, there's money exchanged, and it's a, it's a, it's a marketing issue. And those, those same pharmaceutical companies and medical device companies, um, they're probably some of the most brilliant marketers of new products that I've ever seen. You know, Ten years ago, I don't think anyone, at least I know I wouldn't have thought, um, you know, some of the bigger companies would be advertising directly to the public on the television during one of the popular programs. Mm-hmm. You can't even watch a half hour of television, cable or or not, or satellite, without seeing these commercials, um, which I think have produced some funny family moments in my family about asking about what certain drugs are and do and um, with children who I'd really rather not have that conversation <laughs> with. But, um, <laughs> But, but all of that to say, the, the medical device and pharmaceutical companies have been incredibly supportive, and appropriately so, in the research and development of new products and in the getting out the how do you use this product in the most effective way. And so there is their, they, they bring value to the table, and I think it's the, the bottom line to the whole controversy is well, how can we ensure that what they're bringing is appropriate? And how do we measure what is and what isn't appropriate in this in this whole world of CME, for example? I, I love your attitude about this. I, I have this strong tendency to believe that the vast majority of time, um, when we uh, other people are just like us and they do the right things, mm-hmm. and then. You know, rare events happen. Those rare events make huge publicity, and yep. we tend to think that that the the rare negative event is somehow representative. So, what you're saying is that while people may have heard about uh, inappropriate drug marketing that, that may occur, may have been terrible, that the vast majority of the time the companies are awesome for creating new drugs, and right. and and the vast majority of the time they are appropriately help, trying to educate doctors in the use of their products. Right, and and I think it's unfortunate. What what's really happened is the perception out there is not that 
the perception out there is and 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 whether or not we as a health as healthcare professionals uh, opened the door for all of this perception issue and I would probably suggest we have over the years um, is you know that you're you get a, a free lunch from a pharmaceutical company and you're going to be their biggest salesperson the next week and there's been a lot of very interesting research that shows that um, the the highly educated pharmaceutical representatives who come and visit physicians and explain new products and provide uh, education about them, um, they're very effective. And there's no doubt about that. These, they're, Like I said, they're brilliant marketing people in general. And I think the unfortunate part is as healthcare professionals, uh, several, several years and probably decades ago, we kind of let that go unchecked and let it go undocumented on what that really means and how does that really translate and um, kind of created this perception, unfortunately, for ourselves that we need to, we, we now have to, we absolutely have to, and we take huge amounts of energy and documentation on disclosures, on um, uh, credit, the, accrediting CME activities so that there's it's legitimate continuing medical education and not just a promotional activity for the new company's product. And that gets there's 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 a lot of shades of gray on that. And unfortunately um, what's what has to happen uh, and what's happening to us right now is the shades of gray have to get declared whether they are a, a the safe or the unsafe or the appropriate or the inappropriate. And that documentation, uh, it, it, it can get, it, it gets really challenging really quickly. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. We're speaking today with Dr. Michael Lichke. He's director of the Northwest Area Health Education Center and the Executive Director of the Office of Continuing Medical Education at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Michael, thank you for your time. Um, in our closing moments, do you have any specific suggestions for our listeners on how they can assure they're getting the best possible health care? Yeah, and I think, I think this is a, a generational thing that we have learned. Um, and anybody who's cared for an elderly relative and has taken them to the doctor, I think, would, would chime in with this. When I would have taken my grandmother years ago to the physician, questions were almost forbidden, according to her. You don't ask the doctor a question, Mickey. Don't ask a question, Mickey. Shush, Mickey, <laughs> quiet. The doctor's talking. Um, now, when I go to the physician, um, we all go in, I think, in today's world, much more prepared, much more knowledgeable than I think generations in the past have gone. And it's not that we're there. We're asking challenging questions. We need. We need to get... We need to understand what's happening and what the real options are. So what I tell people is you're going to be your best advocate. You're going to be your best family's health advocate. So roll up your sleeves, learn what you can, ask questions, be sure you understand, and, and document for your own knowledge um, what's happening and, and why we're pursuing this treatment plan and, and is that really the best thing for us. Outstanding advice. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Steve. Dr. Lischke is an expert on what physicians go through to maintain their knowledge of medicine. 
And he hits on a key point. You want to choose a doctor. You want to have a doctor who you trust, who you rely on. That That is so critical. And as part of your ability to trust them, it's helpful to know the extent to which they're continually upgrading their knowledge of medicine because medicine is constantly changing and you really do need to keep up. Now, that said, if you found a doctor you've trust, that's not the end of what it takes to maintain great health care. Michael has reiterated something that many of our guests say. You have to take personal responsibility for your health. You have to be prepared. You have to be knowledgeable about your health. You have to understand what's going on with yourself. When you meet with the doctor, you want to you want to prepare ahead of time. And when you leave the doctor's office, you want to leave well-educated. And almost certainly that means you want to leave with written instructions on hand for um, how to take care of yourself and what your doctor's recommendations are. This is a key point. It, it was something our our guest on the show last week, Margot Corbett, um, raised. Um, you may remember she created the Savvy Patients Toolkit, the toolkit to help patients organize uh, the things they need to take greater charge of their own health care. Through the Doctor Score website, we've offered similar materials, perhaps not as extensive. A basic drug list of things you're on, things you've been on, would be key things to keep in mind. Uh, Margot talked about having laboratory test results as well. I think that would be a huge help. Between taking that kind of personal responsibility, being prepared yourself, and knowing that you have a doctor that you can trust, one who's continuing their medical education for the rest of their life, uh, as part of their continuing devotion to their career and their craft, I think you will get the best possible medical care. And I hope you do until we speak again next week when we're scheduled to speak about board certification in medicine, various specialties, and what's involved in becoming board certified. Thank you so much for joining us. Our theme music is by the incomparably talented Michael Zioli. I wish you a happy and healthy week. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com. DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.